electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and the big event this hour, Fed Chair Jay Powell summoned to the White House, meeting with the president on the economy and inflation. This as President Biden pushes his own plan to bring prices down. Will it all result in a more hawkish Fed than markets currently expect? And soaring energy prices aren't helping the situation. Oil jumping again today, hitting $118 a barrel as gasoline futures hit another record high. Is there any relief in sight? Plus the consumer fallout. Spending on big ticket items is starting to slow. Is the hit exaggerated by a shift to services or is inflation simply to blame? But first, Dominic Chu with our numbers. All right, so the numbers are interesting because if you look at it right now, Kelly, it seems like a ho-hum, nothing's really going on kind of day. The Dow Industrial is down a measly 63 points. The S&P is down one full point, and the Nasdaq is up 35. Very modest moves, but consider the fact that at the lows of the day, that composite index for the Nasdaq was down 189 points. We are significantly off the lows. And in green for the Nasdaq composite, you can see very much off the session lows for both the Dow Industrials and the S&P. The S&P right now, 41.55. So trying to find some of that footing in a market that has been, yes, very volatile post-holiday weekend for the Memorial Day celebration here in the United States. If you look at where the kind of the happenings are, where the positivity is in the market right now, it certainly is in some of that kind of growth and technology-oriented trade. If you look at a couple of the ETFs that track growth-oriented stocks, the top white line versus the orange line, which is the value stocks, we know that value has been outperforming for the better part of this year. And you can see here that gap is fairly wide. But take a look at that outperformance just over the course of the past week. We have closed the gap a little bit. Growth stocks are a little bit more in vogue right now, so maybe that's the signal of a bottom. The bulls are hoping that. The bears say we still have another leg to go lower in this market. Now, if you look at the stocks of the day, anybody who is either diabetic or knows somebody who is may be familiar with these companies. Dexcom, the biggest gainer in the S&P 500, and then Insulet Corporation. The reason why is because just about a week ago, Kelly, there was some chatter, some reports, some speculation about Dexcom maybe making a bid for Insulet. Dexcom makes glucose monitoring equipment. Insulet makes pods for insulin. Might be a combination. Well, Dexcom takes a very big step and comes out formally and says, while they never quote on merger speculation, they say they are not in active deal talks with anybody right now. That is what set Dexcom higher by about 4.5% and Insulet lower by about 10 So keep an eye. Healthcare on that side of things. Dexcom, a very big mover in today's trade, Kel. I'll send things back over to a you. A growing area of venture capital activity as well. Dom, thank you very much. Now, President Biden is just moments away from meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell at the White House. This after the president published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal laying out his plans for curbing inflation. 
His three-part plan includes not meddling with the Fed, tactically targeting energy, freight, housing, drug, and child care costs, and reducing the te- deficit by raising taxes. So how much of this inflation fight will fall to the Fed and how much to the White House? And what is the historical significance of today's meeting between Biden and Powell? For more, let's bring in David Wessel. He's director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings. David, thrilled you could join me today. What do you think is the significance of this meeting? Well, have we ever had a time where the Fed chair was going to the White House and ran the risk of being overshadowed by a K-pop band? I mean, that's really unprecedented. Um, I think that uh, I think basically what we've seen here is that uh, the president wants to demonstrate he's worried about inflation. And what's significant is he's standing behind the Fed as it raises interest rates. And that's basically very different than what we've seen in some periods in the past. This is a big political risk for him as well, because he's basically saying, and he writes in the piece, that if job growth slows from 500 to 150,000 a month, that would be a good sign. You know, he's preparing people for a slowing economy into the midterms, which we don't typically see happen. But that reflects the reality, David, that inflation is already causing political fallout and fighting it aggressively seems to be the only option left. Absolutely. And I think the president is trying to demonstrate that he understands that people are anxious about inflation and he's using whatever power he has, which as an executive is pretty limited, to do something about it. He's demonstrating a concern. From the Fed's point of view, this is very convenient. They have the political establishment as their back as they raise interest rates. And they're hoping that all this talk about inflation will help uh, prevent inflation expectations from getting any worse than they are already because that's essential part of their strategy. You know, the market rally of the last couple of weeks is predicated on lower bond yields and this idea sort of stoked by some Fed officials that maybe uh, they're not going to do a lot more half point hikes. And as Nick Timrose has been reporting, as we heard from Chris Waller, the Fed governor yesterday, and now with the significance of this op-ed and summit, you do have to wonder if there's going to be a lot more tightening still to come from this Fed than people expect. Well, look, it's getting a little ridiculous. Now that the Fed has essentially pre-announced what it's going to do at each of the next two meetings, 50 basis point increases once and 50 basis points twice, the speculation is what happens after that? And the short answer to that is, well, that depends on what the world looks like then. Um, And so I, I sort of think this is getting kind of out of control. My personal opinion is that Jay Powell is so determined to avoid being the Fed chairman who let inflation get out of control is that he will err on the side of tightening too much rather than too little. So to that extent, I think the market may be misreading him. With apologies for asking you this, what 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 does Ben Bernanke say about all this right now? I mean, you've interviewed him. You spent a lot of time with him the past couple of weeks. He has this new book out, which is a reflection on monetary policy. And it seems, you know, as I read, it, I, I can't help but escape the conclusion that what he's saying is that it's always the Fed's fault. If policy is too tight, if policy is too loose, that yes, they need to take into account whatever D.C. is doing, but that monetary policy is the primary driver of inflation and only the Fed can really cure it. And is that implicitly his advice for what they should be doing right now? Well, yes, I think what Ben Bernanke has said is, yes, the Fed misread the economy and it expected inflation to be transitory, a word which we've now banned. And it, it and has now moved very quickly to make correct for that mistake. He has a great deal of confidence that the Fed will achieve its inflation goal over the next couple of years. 
And he said at the event we had at Brookings that he wouldn't be surprised if the unemployment rate went up a little bit. There's not really much fiscal policy can do at a time like this unless the Congress and the president are really ready to raise taxes, particularly on people who tend to spend less when taxes go up. And that would mean raising taxes on people in the bottom half of the population. And I can tell you one thing I'm sure of, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So, yes, it's the Fed's job. Bernanke is confident they will do it, but it's going to be tricky. And this is me, not Bernanke. It's going to be hard to avoid a mild recession, but a lot depends on luck. What happens with COVID? What happens with Ukraine, Russia, commodity prices, what China does? A lot of it is out of the Fed's control. Yeah, and a lot of these events, you know, they're, they're multi-factor causes, as, as Charlie Munger would remind us. So as we wait for this meeting, which should be underway, you know, any moment now, it will probably expect some kind of short public discussion followed by a much lengthier private one. What are you going to be listening or watching for? I'm not sure that this is, this is more theater than substance. Uh, remember the last time uh, when we had a different president and Jay Powell met with him? The Fed released a statement before the meeting was over in order to preempt a Trump tweet. Well, the one thing I'm sure of, there won't be a Joe Biden tweet saying I beat Jay uh, Powell over the head with a baseball bat. So I, I, the only thing that would surprise me is if anything the White House says suggests that they're not 100 percent behind the rate hikes that are clearly in train at the Fed. And I don't expect that. All right, David, again, great to have you today. Thanks for the time. Good to be with you. David Wessel with the Brookings. Quick programming note, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly will be on Check Check Tech Check for an exclusive interview tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Definitely don't want to miss it. Now, for years, the Wall Street motto has been Tina. There is no alternative to stocks. Bond yields were historically low. Commodities weren't doing much, and the stock market just seemed to only go higher. But now that rates have moved up with the potential to go higher as the Fed gets more hawkish, Commodities are soaring and stocks become have become a lot less attractive. There are reasonable alternatives now, or are stocks still the play, best place to be? Let's ask Alan Boomer. He's chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Alan, this is your uh, your phrase here, your moniker, and I, I do think it's an appropriate one. So explain it a little bit and, and where it leaves you in terms of the market. Sure. Thanks for having me. And listen, I, a year ago, we were buying stocks because there's nothing else to buy even though we knew that valuations were, were getting a little pricey. Now, you look at a market that's sold off a lot, and even bonds that have sold off a lot. There's been a, a re-rating across all asset classes. And now you can buy some things and feel pretty good about it right now. There's a lot of stocks trading at really attractive valuations, really nice dividends. And, even, and then in bonds, there's also some good fixed income out there right now. So Tara, there are some reasonable alternatives out there in the market right now. So would you be buying bonds here after everything we just talked about, the risk that the Fed could prove to be more hawkish than people expect? Yeah, a little. Look, I look at a yield curve that is still in, it's still got some positive slope to it. And like just last week, I was able to buy in the secondary market bank CDs that are FDIC insured for two or three years, and I got a 3% rate of interest. Like I, I could not buy a 3% three-year paper or two-year piece of two-year paper anytime in the last few years. And so I, I'd be cautiously optimistic that even though I'm concerned about inflation, I, I would expect that I'd get my money back. And in the future, I'll be able to put that money out and get a pretty good rate of return in the future. So again, 
if you're going to buy bonds, now's a, a decent time to buy them. You know, I, I would still say stocks are more attractive right now because there's a number of stocks that have a dividend yield that's even higher than what you're getting from bonds. But both, again, are a lot more attractive than they were a year ago. Yeah, we'll circle back to some of those names in a moment. But on commodities, if you're interested in that space, do you do it through physical commodities or through equities with exposure? Yeah, I think the easier play is always going to be the equities with some exposure. Like when you're playing commodities, you've always got to be cognizant of the fact that there's contango on a lot of commodities. And contango really just means there's a cost to rolling contracts forward. And that cost will really eat into your returns a lot. Like I used to work at Goldman Sachs years ago. And I remember one time we had a bullish call on corn and it was the right call, <laughs> but we, we didn't factor in the cost of rolling those contracts. And in a market where corn prices went higher, investors actually lost money because of those costs. So I'd rather be, if I was bullish on corn, I'd rather buy a company like Bonger or a, a company that's in the agricultural uh, space that's actually producing the, uh, the the corn or the the you know whatever the, the product I'm looking to get exposed to. Yeah, I mean, imagine that that you make the right call and it still doesn't work as an investment. So you can only imagine uh, if that timing doesn't perfectly play into your hands. Let's mention you mentioned Bunge. Uh, let's mention a couple of other names that you think are attractive here, maybe for their yield. Uh, what are a couple of investments that you think investors could kind of go for? Yeah, a few others. So I like Merck. Merck's got a really nice dividend. It trades at a discount. Um, uh, Philip 66 is another. Philip 66 is really in, in the energy space. I think, you know, this year energy's gotten a lot of attention, rightfully so. I think we are in the midst of this, this, this sort of energy price super cycle where, where prices are getting higher. And I think that Philip 66 is one of those companies that's kind of been overlooked. It hasn't rallied as much as, as a lot of the other uh, energy market players. Uh, dividends are strong there. And, you know, as a refiner, you've got a lot of ability to pass on your prices to the end user. And so, again, I think Philip 66 is a good look. And uh, there's a few others, but there, there's so many names. I look at even small cap value as a asset class, huh. right? Like the whole, the whole small cap value market is trading at under 10 times earnings right now. Wow. I mean, things are really on sale. What about real estate? Last question, whether it's through you know, REITs or real estate cycle exposed equities or literally real estate, which plenty of people have dabbled in uh, in the last couple of years. Yeah, I like real estate generally. I mean, if you've got the ability to manage a property on your own as an owner of real estate, you get to mark your rents up every year. That That's a thing that really helps you to fight inflation. All leases have some sort of an inflation rider in them. But if you can't go out and buy physical properties, then the best alternative would be to look at REITs. And I think there's a lot of great REITs, REITs out there. One that I buy is REZ. The ticker's REZ. It's residential uh, REITs. And they're focused on uh, apartment buildings and kind of single-family homes. But mainly, it's, it's multi-family homes. Uh, it got a great dividend yield as well. So I, I like REITs as a play also. Yeah. And still making a call that that, you know, that space will continue to perform. Alan, thanks for joining. It's like a sort of a quick masterclass in, uh, in, in Terra, <laughs> uh, so to speak. There are reasonable alternatives. Thanks again. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Alan Boomer with Momentum Advisors. All right. Coming up, the EU's new agreement to ban Russian oil is pushing gasoline futures to a record high today and WTI crude to back within striking distance of $120 a barrel. And to make matters worse, bottlenecks at refineries are fueling fears of global gasoline shortages. Up next, why drivers won't be breathing a sigh of relief anytime soon. 
Plus, one of the people responsible for bringing Top Gun Maverick to life. Skydance Media CEO David Ellison joins us in his first ever TV interview with his reaction to Maverick's massive debut, his thoughts on the future of the movie business, and much more. As we head to break, here's a quick look at markets. Dow's off the lows. It's down 86. S&P down 6. NASDAQ in the green today. The 10-year back at 284. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude oil prices are edging closer to their March highs as the EU announces a new round of sanctions on Russian energy. WTI crude down to about 117 from its earlier highs, and that's pushing Arbob gasoline futures to record highs today. $4.16. You can tack a bunch more on top of that. $5 or so, that's going to be the national average. Anyway, this has nearly doubled over the past 12 months. The spike in energy prices is spilling over into the stock market, where 19 out of the top 20 names in the S&P this year are, of course, energy stocks. Look at some of those gainers. Occidental's up 147%. And we all know when you look at gasoline prices across the country, we continue to hit record highs. $4.62 today. That's the new high national average. About a dollar. 50 more than a year ago. Our oil and energy and everything guru, Brian Sullivan, is here to talk a little bit more about this, Brian. So it, it just cost me $100 to commute here, by the way, to studio. Absolutely. That's, I, um, and that's almost not an exaggeration. No, there are some people who are going to start working from home to avoid that fuel hit. And of course, it's not those who are going to be most hit by it. But here's the question. The, specifically, what Europe has announced as it relates to Russian oil supplies is a they are not going to allow ship imports, but they can do it via pipeline for the sake of Hungary and Czech and maybe something. B, that the natural gas continues, which is more important yep. for their economy. And C, in a weird way, we bear the brunt of the price adjustment for oil and gasoline here because our economy is still relatively more sensitive to that than Europe's We're car-based, absolutely. And I was only half joking. I paid six oh six a gallon in New Jersey yesterday. Wow. Now, this is, a, this is a single station, one owner kind of off, so he could do that. He was... Definitely taking advantage of the situation. From a national perspective, international, here's nothing's been announced yet. The EU today floated what they think they're going to do. Tomorrow they'll vote and probably go ahead with this. You're exactly right on the points about this. They're trying to wean off Russian oil by the end of the year. They're trying to do that largely by making it impossible to insure tankers with Russian oil on them. Greece doesn't like it because they are the big shipping. So they're trying to 
everybody's Placate got their, everybody. Everybody yeah. has their own beef right. with some part of this. Mm -hmm. But they are going to wean off. They're hoping to get, what, 80, 90 percent of Russian oil out of the EU. Here's the big question. They're doing it to, as they say, basically end the funding for Putin's war machine. Mm -hmm. A noble goal. Let's hope it works. Right. My guess is India is just going to buy up all those extra barrels. Russian oil production is only down about a million barrels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you do the conversion Which, of the rubles... Way, Russia may be making more money now. Well, I hate to say it, but again, it is relatively better for the U.S. consumer struggling with high gasoline prices that Russia's oil ends up somewhere because this market is so tight. If the global oil deficit is mm. more than it is, right, in a way, you at least want those barrels to find somewhere. But you're right. It's unfortunately going to keep funding that war machine that Europe is trying India, to avoid funding. India has been a huge buyer. Uh, you know, there's, there, bizarrely, there are Russian-owned refineries in the EU, it's in Italy, in Sicily. Italy's biggest refinery is actually owned by Russia. So they've been a huge buyer. So all this is going to come to an end. We'll see if China and India pick up those barrels. The question is, where does Europe get? Now, Europe's going to slow demand, but the cutoff of Russian oil is going to be more than the slowdown. So where do they pick up those extra barrels? Do we start exporting to Europe? More, maybe. Angola? Nor I'm not joking. Norway? They're I mean, just they're not gonna, a huge supply. Libya's, I mean, there's a limited Libya's down, so they're, so they're not going to be it. And the Iranian nuclear deal looks like it's, it's not getting anywhere. So those extra barrels are probably not going to be on the market to the U.S. or Western consumers, at least not for a while, if ever. Notably this morning in the president's op-ed in the Wall Street mm. Journal, the only energy relief measure he talks about is clean energy credits. In other words, there, there is nothing official coming from the White House at this point about anything to specifically try to lower mm. this price. So should we just expect it to keep, keep going higher and how much higher? Do you yeah, think? it's hard to know. I mean, here's the thing about fossil fuels. There's two uses. We always frame oil in terms of gasoline and driving places or using jet fuel. I get that. Natural gas, which to your point, the EU did not touch. Natural gas is used to make stuff make everything, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, plastics, even wind turbines, solar panels, bodies for cars, for electric cars. Natural gas is used to heat homes so people don't freeze to death. And the price, by it's the way... It's a very different and much more important commodity in many ways than oil it's is. It's still getting this, this spike from the global energy crunch. So in that sense, there is going to be an impact already working. We still haven't really felt the impact of the doubling in prices we've seen this year. Is there any relief for any of this, for natural gas, for gasoline, no. for oil? What ends this? No. Some, some resolution on, with the Russia-Ukraine war? Or That would be huge. By the way, that would be huge for the world in so many ways, especially yeah. for the people of Ukraine. Just end it. And there are, from what I understand, some conversations that are Maybe starting to happen. Let's all pray that ultimately is the case. And I think you'll see things really shuffle around if that happens. I don't think there's any end to it. Now, I could be wrong, but everything I'm reading, and I'm just going to kind of aggregate, it's not my opinion, I'll just aggregate everything I'm reading from people like Halima Croft and people I love and trust. Uh, you're getting one and a half to two and a half million barrels of Russia off the market. Good to squeeze Putin as long as he doesn't sell it somewhere else. But you got to make up for it lest demand goes down, yeah. Kelly. Okay? AAA is estimating, and we'll get the numbers, I think, tomorrow. 8% jump in driving this Memorial Day from last year, wow. which was a huge jump, of course, because of COVID, from 2020. Everybody's in their car. Everybody's at the airport. Mm -hmm. Okay, are there going to be jet fuel shortages in the Northeast this summer? It's possible. Diesel shortages, possible in Europe? Probable. 
more than possible. And those are the next shoes that could drop here unless you And said- by the way, g- quickly, demand destruction in gasoline does not happen that fast. People think, oh, people stop driving. Most people drive because they have to. Imagine if everybody started going back to the office. Well, and even with 8% higher on Memorial Day, that tells you not a lot of price sensitivity to high fuel prices. Brian, for now, thanks. Sure. Good to see you. We appreciate it. Until next time. Yeah, I'm going to bike home. Yeah, it's fine. Brian Sullivan. (laughs) Still ahead, will these soaring fossil fuel prices push a faster shift to clean energy? Well, like Brian just said, we'll look at what rising energy costs mean for the commodities needed to make the renewables. But first, how big of an impact is inflation having on consumer confidence? The latest numbers and the areas suffering the most from tighter spending, one of which may surprise you. Stay with us. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow is down 460 points at the lows this morning, so a much better tone this afternoon. Although we haven't yet heard anything from the president's meeting with Fed Chair Powell this hour, it has not yet begun. The Dow's down 127 points. As for the movers are watching, looking at shares of companies in the crypto space trading higher. Coinbase, Silvergate, MicroStrategy in the green as Bitcoin's back above 32,000, just below that right now. American Eagle falling after Morgan Stanley downgraded it to underweight and cut its price target to just 8 bucks. 40% downside from here. The analyst says they see further room for sales misses and margin declines. Chinese internet names are leading the NASDAQ today, putting the Crane Shares China Internet ETF on pace for its fourth straight positive session. The K-Web is set to post a 4% gain in May. It's been one of the worst performers over the past year. Tesla, meantime, on pace for its fourth straight day of gains as well. It's up 23% in just this short period of time. It's low for the year so far with $620 a share. It has already sprung back up to 760. And let's end with a check on this month's worst Dow stock. It's Walmart down 15% in May. Remember those earnings? It plunged 11% after missing estimates for the worst day since 1987 earlier this month. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The heavy death toll from flooding and mudslides in Brazil now stands at 91, with dozens of additional people still missing. Hundreds of state and federal rescue workers in northeastern Brazil are still searching for survivors. This disaster follows similar flooding and mudslides that occurred in the Rio de Janeiro region of Brazil back in February. 
Amid calls for gun control after last week's massacre in Uvalde, Texas, more than a dozen shootings occurred across the country over the Memorial Day weekend. Over the span of 72 hours, the Gun Violence Archive tracked at least 14, quote, mass shootings in the country in which four or more people were shot. According to the organization's data, at least nine people were killed in the shootings with more than 60 injured. The Democratic-led House Judiciary Committee is planning an emergency session on Thursday to mark up a package of gun violence prevention bills. The bill, called the Protecting Our Kids Act, would raise the buying age for semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21 years old, among other measures. For full in-depth coverage of Congress's planned bills, tune into the News with Shepard Smith. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you, and I will see you soon. See you shortly. Now, after a two-year delay due to the pandemic, Top Gun Maverick finally hit the big screen over the holiday weekend, and audiences around the globe were eager to head to theaters. It raked in more than $160 million just in the U.S. over the long weekend, $300 million worldwide, shattering records. Joining us now in an exchange exclusive is one of the men behind the movie, producer and Skydance CEO David Ellison, along with our own Julia Borston. Julia, I'll hand it over to you guys just to note that everyone that I know who saw it raved about it. Yes, indeed. This is a movie that had a 99% positive audience score on Rotten Tomatoes um, and has been a huge financial success for Paramount and also for David Ellison and Skydance Media. David, thank you so much for joining us today in what is your first TV interview after over a decade in this business. We're very glad to have you. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and it's an absolute privilege to be here. So, David, I want to start off with the Top Gun Maverick numbers. Paramount just updated the box office again, even higher than they had anticipated even yesterday. How does the performance of this movie that you've worked on for a decade change your outlook on what types of movies you want to invest in going forward and what your expectations are for the box office? Uh, so look, we could not be more thrilled, more excited with the performance of Top Gun Maverick this weekend. And just want to start by thanking our, our incredible partners with Tom Cruise, Jerry Bruckheimer, Joe Kaczynski. And I think what Top Gun showed is that with the right movie, people want to have an escape. They want to have a good time at the movies. And, um, you know, we're really thrilled that we were able to deliver that to audiences this weekend. I think it's interesting, David, that you've also made some of the biggest movies on Netflix, even in Amazon. You did The Old Guard and Adam Project. And you also have a first look film, with, a first look deal with Apple Films. Explain to us your strategy and your perspective on what types of films should go on which platforms. So, um, so Skydance, as you said, we started the company 12 years ago. We're a diversified media company with five divisions across film, television, animation, interactive, and the most recent one, Skydance Sports. And for us, it's it. We really believe in the core thematic that quality is always the best business plan, and you know, and, and we're big believers in consumer choice. So for us, it's always a case by case basis on where we think that particular story uh, can reach the broadest audience. And as you said, we're Incredibly proud that we've released three movies with Netflix. Uh, all of them debuted in the top 10. Uh, we had The Tomorrow War and Without Remorse last year with Amazon. And we now have an incredibly, uh, a deal we're really excited about with Apple, who have been phenomenal partners to us. And we have our first animated movie, Luck, coming out this August uh, in partnership with John Lasseter and Holly yeah. Edward. Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
But so big picture, big picture though, do you think audiences are going to continue to go to the theater or do you think that Top Gun is going to be a little bit more of an aberration um, and, and the numbers may drop below what we saw in, in 2019 in terms of summer box office? I think we're definitely still recovering from the pandemic, but what I, I hope Top Gun helped prove this weekend is that for the right movie, audiences will really come back to, a th to the theater. Uh, they want to see stories like Top Gun on the biggest screen possible. There's no better place to see this movie than on an IMAX screen. Uh, but I also think, you know, the direct-to-consumer business has definitively changed consumer behavior. And I think above everything else, audiences are really going to want choice and that people are going to be very selective about what movies they want to go to theatrically and what they want to see at home. And from our perspective, um, you know, we're a diversified company and we love uh, being able to be a content engine that can power the overall ecosystem around us. So in terms of that streaming ecosystem, I mean, you have experience with a lot of these different companies. Are you concerned about a contraction in the number of subscribers that Netflix raised a lot of red flags about? Are you worried about that for Netflix? Could things get even worse? And what about for the industry as a whole? So we're, we're big believers in the direct-to-consumer business. We're big believers in Netflix. Uh, you know, we've been partners with them since they started in the original content business. Uh, Grace and Frankie, uh, which we just uh, premiered the series finale last month is their longest running show in the history of their network. And I think there's also a lot of macroeconomics at play. You know, uh, you know, when you look at you guys have been talking about this, the rising, um, you know, inflation, rising interest rates, mortgage rates going up. Uh, I think there are some larger macroeconomics that are definitely contributing. Uh, but when you typically look at the entertainment business, it's always been counter cyclical. And, you know, whether it's your streaming service or whether it's a movie in the theater, uh, it's still one of the most cost effective forms of entertainment. And as I think Top Gun proved this weekend, people really need an escape right now with everything going on in the world. Another thing we've been talking a lot about today is the preparations in Shanghai for some of the COVID restrictions to lift. I know that Tencent is one of your investors. I believe that Top Gun Maverick will not get a release in China, but I'm wondering if you have any update on that and what your outlook is on the Chinese box office in general, because that has been historically really an important piece of the business for the American studios. You know, as you said, we have a we have a great relationship with uh, with Tencent. They've been an investor in our business for a long time, and uh, along with CG Entertainment and Redbird Capital Partners. Um, you know, it's still unknown at this time whether or not we will uh, get a release date in China for Top Gun. Um, and really, you know, the so, some some geopolitical tensions have made that a little tricky. But as you said, it's an incredibly significant market, and our hope is always to try to get uh, our films into that marketplace. Yeah, certainly a growing market there. Now, David, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could give us some perspective on what you learned from watching your father, Larry Ellison, build and, and grow Oracle and what you've been able to take from that learning and apply to the entertainment business. Um, so my dad is one of the most uh, competitive people that I've that I've ever met. And, um, you know, and, and really kind of his tenacity and perseverance was an incredible learning lesson. And really, as it comes to if there's something that you believe in, um, to never take no for an answer, to never stop fighting for something uh, that you love, if you really believe it's something that can work. And as uh, Top Gun Maverick was the first movie that we said we wanted to make it paramount, and we signed our original deal there in 2010, uh, it's been a journey. And after 12 years, uh, very much thank the lessons my my father taught me. We're thrilled to uh, to have it in theaters. And again, 
could not be more grateful to our, our partners at Paramount. The campaign they ran on this movie was absolutely remarkable. And uh, again, incredibly grateful to our filmmaking partners and everybody involved in the picture. Well, certainly a massive success. David Ellison, thank you so much for joining us for your first TV interview, and we hope you will come back soon. Kelly, back thank over you. to you. That thank was you. fascinating. Julia, thank you. David, thank you. So I'm glad you asked. I'm always curious. You know, not many people grow up as the son of someone like Larry Ellison, Julia, and I liked his answer. Yeah, it certainly seems like, like he learned something from watching his father. And, and look, it took a lot of persistence to get this movie made after over a decade. Uh, wow. so, so you can only imagine the, the challenges both before the pandemic and then that decision and debate about what to do with it once the lockdowns and, and pandemic started and a lot of movie theaters were closed. Yeah, and now in many ways it feels like almost a symbolic end, hopefully, uh, to this whole thing. And, and one on such a nice note. Julia, thank you again. Our Julia Borston talking to David Ellison today. Coming up, Senator Elizabeth Warren has a new Wall Street Target SPACs. The details of her new bill are next. Welcome back. Senator Elizabeth Warren has had her eye on SPACs since last year and now reportedly is poised to crack down on them with her SPAC Accountability Act of 2022. Leslie Picker is here now with all the details and whether this bill will gain traction, Leslie. But once again, may I suggest the market has kind of done the work for her. Who's doing a SPAC anymore? Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem, right? You've got the regulation, you've got the litigation, you've got now you have potential legislation here. Uh, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren plans to introduce the SPAC Accountability Act of 2022, building on the SEC's proposed guidelines. In the forthcoming bill, she intends to codify the definitions of SPAC underwriters and close what she calls loopholes that SPACs use to make financial projections. There's little other detail in today's release in the SEC public public comment period for its proposed SPAC regulation actually ends today as well. So we should get some more information in the forthcoming weeks. Senator Warren, along with three other Democratic lawmakers, sent letters last September to six creators of SPACs, including Tillman Fertitta, Chamath Palihapitiya, and Michael Klein, seeking information about compensation and potential conflicts of interest. So today she revealed a pretty large, sizable report based on those findings, as well as conversations with the SEC and experts in the field that kind of are helping inform this legislation. It's unclear, though, Kelly, what kind of support this bill would get, but it could add to an already chilled environment for SPACs. A CNBC index of companies that recently went public via SPACs has lost 40 percent this year, and the number of new SPAC issuance plummeted. So far in 2022, there were only 53 new SPACs raising $9 billion during the first three months of the year, one-tenth the value raised during the same period in 2021. Incredible. I mean, and that's what you wonder is, okay, well, how much... How much of this is, listen, I'm not saying there wasn't a problem that needed to be solved, but we also have the SEC coming at this. There are, who's going to take the, where's the main, the most important change you think going to come from? I think the big catalyst here for the chill is this idea of liability for underwriters. And so you've, what, what was a big sea change in 2020 and 2021 is you had these bold bracket firms that historically hadn't been underwriters of SPACs, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, even Credit Suisse, which really led the charge of this being kind of the new way IPO, historically hadn't been huge in the SPAC world. Well, they saw this as big business, and it really was in terms of fees for their firms. But if these rules, and uh, especially if this 
uh, proposed legislation becomes law, they could face more liability in things like the projections, the financial projections, wow. if those turn out to be wrong, and other issues that these big banks just don't want to risk. Hasn't Goldman already shut down its SPAC department? or Because the, they were already, I think, yep. concerned about some kind of maybe legal blowback or just maybe investor fallout that they would get tarnished with a, you know, that brush. Pretty much every big bank has put a pause on this business, essentially because they need to see how the proposed rules play out and what their risk profile looks like. But if they're going to be liable for a SPAC, it's just not worth underwriting that deal. It's not worth being involved in de-SPAC processes. I've actually heard indications of underwriters who have underwritten SPACs, and then once they find their merger target are basically like, you know what, I don't even need back pay compensation for this going through because I don't want to come afoul of any of the potential <laughs> regulations that are in the process. So they have basically taken a massive step back here. And without those big underwriters, it's just a little bit harder to do. There are underwriters still doing this. They're just much, much smaller firms. One way or another, the SPACs feel like they have, I don't want to say gone for good, but it's its its not going to be anything like the market that it once was. I don't think so. No. Leslie, thanks. Thank Leslie you. Picker, we appreciate it. Good to see you. Good to see you. The Consumer Confidence Index dropping again in May after a tick higher in April. The assessment of the labor market and the gauge that measures consumer six-month outlook, they both soured a bit. Also, purchasing intentions for big-ticket items like houses and cars cooled. But get this, so did plans for vacations. Joining us now is Steve Odland. He is CEO of the Conference Board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's great to have you here, and maybe you can give us some anecdotal insight as to what's going on with the U.S. consumer here. Yeah. Hi, Kelly. The, you know, the the uh, conference sports consumer confidence index did drop a little bit. The bigger story is it's been very flat over the past three months. You know, it's just been bouncing around a little bit, which has been surprising because, you know, with all the the talk about, you know, are we going to have a recession or whatever? The consumer has really held up here. And the the drop or the little the little adjustment here has been about the future. They're feeling great about where they are. And this is driven by, you know, virtually full employment. Everybody has jobs, their wages are going up, they're feeling good, but they're nervous about, you know, down the road. And the reason they're nervous is because of inflation. And that's why you see the purchase intent for big items dropping because they're becoming very expensive. And now we see interest rates coming up. So yeah. borrowing for that is also more expensive. But the fact that people are pulling back on vacations, what are you learning? I don't know. I haven't been on a plane that has had an empty seat, so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where this pullback is coming from. But, you know, this inflation thing is the key thing. You know, we did a uh, the CEO confidence index, and that's, you know, they're very worried about inflation, too, and they're raising prices uh, as part of that. The CEO confidence index came down here um, uh, a couple weeks ago. And that's, a, I think, a, a more of a precursor to, you know, uh, leading into uh, a possible recession. And the CEOs are telling us it's not the consumer we're worried about and it's not the supply chain we're worried about. We're worried about the Fed. And for the first time in history, they're moving two levers at the same time. And we're worried that they're not going to be, uh, be able to engineer a soft fall here and that they're going to actually create a recession. So that's where the recession talk is coming yeah. from. But the consumer Steve, is very strong. On that note, and we thank you for your time today, Steve Odlin. President Biden is meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell at the White House. Let's listen in. Uh, I'm meeting with Chairman today and Secretary Yellen uh, to discuss my top priority, and that is addressing inflation and, uh, and the, in order to transition from historic recovery to a steady growth that works for America. 
American families. Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, my plan is to address inflation. It starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. My job as president is not to uh, nominate highly, not only nominate highly, highly qualified individuals for that institution, but to give them the space they need to do their job. I'm not going to interfere with their critically important work. The Fed has dual responsibilities. One, full employment. Two, stable prices. Chair Powell and other leaders of the Fed have noted at this moment they have a laser focus on addressing inflation, just like I am. And with a larger complement of board members now confirmed, I know we'll use those tools of monetary policy to address the rising uh, prices for the American people. So I look forward to uh, Chairman Powell's continued leadership at the Fed, and I look forward to the Senate considering my final nominee to the board, uh, Michael Barr, in the near future. And uh, that's why we're meeting, folks, and thank you for coming in. President Biden meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell moments ago at the White House. Let's bring in Kayla Tausche for some more reaction, Kayla, to a pretty brief set of comments there. No, re no major headlines yet. A very brief set of comments, Kelly, but a very deep agenda for the president and the Fed chair, newly reconfirmed. And this meeting coming six months after President Biden uh, announced that he would renominate Jay Powell for a second term atop the Federal Reserve. Inflation has only gotten worse since then. And President Biden has set out a message where he is equal parts looking to the Fed to establish its independence, but also looking for a political scapegoat. If inflation continues to be such a high concern for voters, Voters, uh, resting this issue at the feet of the Federal Reserve, which has the most powerful tools to deal with inflation. Now, among the tools that President Biden has suggested he could use, which he said in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last night, he's talked about more releases from the emergency oil reserves to bring down gas prices and potentially working with Congress to pass clean energy tax credits. But in that op-ed, he notably did not mention uh, his Build Back Better plan writ large, which he and his administration officials have long argued will bring down more costs in the medium term. And he also did not reference tariffs on goods imported from China. Secretary Yellen, who you saw there in the Oval Office, has advocated for a large-scale rollback of tariffs to spur the economy and lower inflation. And you can imagine that President Biden, as he is weighing a decision on that front, will want input from Chair Powell on that too, Kelly. Absolutely. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche reporting at the White House. Dow, by the way, down 60 points. We're still well off session lows. Uh, NASDAQ is, uh, S&P is, well, one of them is positive. All right, coming up, this ETF is posting double-digit gains this month, easily outperforming the broader markets, but the shine could wear off if costs keep climbing. Why inflation could put a halt to the entire industry. That's ahead. Welcome back. As the Dow is erasing a 450-point decline right in front of our eyes, it is about to go positive. The S&P is up four points now. The Nasdaq up 39. It does seem to be accelerating in the wake of President's meeting with Fed Chair Jay Powell, which didn't have a lot of major headlines. Solar stocks were some of the big outperformers this month. We showed you the Invesco Solar ETF. 
But solar isn't the only renewable on a tear. How rising costs could derail the green energy trend next. Welcome back. One more thing that should be on your radar before we go. Solar stocks. The Invesco Solar ETF seeing nice gains this month. It's up almost 12 percent, but persistent inflation could actually derail that run. Pippa Stevens has the story. Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Falling costs have been key to renewable energy since it makes wind and solar more competitive with fossil fuel power. But now costs are rising in part because of a jump in raw materials, reversing years of declines, and things are only getting more expensive. Not a surprise given surging demand alongside supply chain disruptions. Polysilicon has tripled in the last 18 months. Lithium is up more than 700% since January 2021. Cobalt has jumped 156%, while nickel has nearly doubled. As the IEA put it, for most minerals and metals vital to the energy transition, The price increases during the first few months of 2022 have exceeded by a wide margin the largest annual increases during the last decade. Now, looking forward, analysts are split on whether costs will keep on rising at this rate. Bank of America said markets may not loosen much, while Goldman believes the battery metals bull market is over for now. But in the meantime, Morgan Bazillion from the Colorado School of Mines said rising costs are a fundamental change for the industry and will impact deployment. Now, these stocks are up for the month, Kelly, as you noted, but still in the red for the year. Pippa, why does Goldman think that the run is over for the battery commodities, if you want to call it that? So they said that prices will keep rising through this year, but then next year, they'll actually, lithium will drop down to about 16,000 around that range. And they said that everyone is aware of how important these metals and minerals are for the transition. So there will be this supply response. They are a bit of an outlier. Not everyone's calling for that, but it's certainly getting a lot more attention. Yeah, we can only hope. Uh, We've seen it before. Hopefully, uh, we'll see something similar this time around. Pippa, thank you very much, our Pippa Stevens. And coming up, we're looking at another area of the economy where inflation is starting to hit. Real estate. Did you see the case Schiller this morning? Why one housing economist says there are signs the market is softening and what it means for supply. Ahead on Power Lunch. Over to Tyler. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.